So, <laughs> cracking open a bottle of wine. Villa Maria. It's beautiful. Um, Villa Maria wine, Anne. And this would be one of how many millions of bottles of Villa Maria produced in the last year? Did we? 35 did we, million. 35 million bottles of Villa Maria. That shows how big the brand is. So cheers. Cheers. Even though this isn't really a, a happy story in a way, is it? But it is. We've got some big news. Oh. <laughs> Something completely unexpected. Uh, I spent quite a long time looking at the Villa Maria story yesterday, mm. and I spoke to Sir George Fistinich, and he told me that retirement isn't for him. He's too busy for retirement. And guess what? He's back in business. Sir George Fistinich is back in business with a new brand of wine. But the saga over the label he started more than 60 years ago is not over yet. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, Villa Maria Estate. How a winemaking pioneer lost the brand that brought him fame and fortune. Two business journalists take me through the receivership, the legal battle, the new owners and a new chapter for its founder. First, New Zealand Herald's property editor Anne Gibson with the latest news on Sir George. He has established a new company called Fistinich uh, Family Wines and basically what that's doing is it's running two vineyards, one in the Hawke's Bay and one in Marlborough. And he told me Cornerstone, which is the Hawke's Bay one, is about 23 hectares. Mm. And uh, the one in Marlborough is called Ballockdale, which is about 30 hectares. And I got such a surprise because I think in the media and in terms of publicity, everyone has been concentrating on the terribly sad story of the the, the loss of the business and the receivership. Mm. But he says, no, um, I'm... His exact words for me, it doesn't suit me being retired. I mean, it is a bit of a sorry saga for Villa Maria, the the company that was owned by Sir George Fistinich for 60 years. He, yes. well, he made wines for 60 years. Well, I think actually to get anywhere, you've got to be very passionate. And I so it's very important to do what you love doing. And I, I love making wine. I just love the industry. So that makes it incredibly easy, and I've, I've lucky I've had the ability to sort of enthuse all my staff and people that work with me with that same passion and enthusiasm. He's called like the father of New Zealand wine, and it's such a lovely story. He's he's so dominant, you know. His name is so well known, and I think it came as a huge shock to people that the holding company which owned Villa Maria was in receivership. So shall we go back? Because, you know, the thing is that the original place where Sir George started making wine is, is out near Auckland Airport. It's not a place that you imagine a winery to be. I have to admit, I've never been there. What's it like oh, out there? It's absolutely beautiful, Sharon. It's near Uhumato, and it's a natural amphitheatre. It's about 30 um, hectares of land. You sweep down off the road and through some big gates, stone gates with the name on the outside, and then there's a lovely collection of, I remember, sort of wooden, cedar-style wooden buildings on the right, and then all the vineyards. So there's 18,000 vines planted out there, 
And then you go through those vines and into an area I recall near a lake. I went out to a John Farnham concert there in November 2019. And we had all these wonderful concerts out there. It's a really lovely place, I have to say. But that's all finished now. A buyer has been found for the iconic wine company Villa Maria. Marlborough-based wine company Indevon has agreed to buy 100% of the company after its parent FFWL was placed into receivership in May, owing its bankers $212 million. Yes, unfortunately, just in the last few days, um, Indevin, which bought the um, the wine part of Villa Maria, they announced that they'll be shutting down the Mangarei site. And um, that's uh, 14 jobs lost, and that's the end of that beautiful Villa Maria estate, which is really sad. And the land has been sold to... Goodman yes, to field. Goodman for $75 million. Goodman Property Trust, they specialise in building like big logistics and um, warehouse buildings. And so they're going to spend, John Dakin told me, I think last year, about $500 million. And so that's going to be, you know, a storage warehouse and logistics freight hub, basically. But we're not just talking about the Mangari Estate. Villa Maria Estate includes vineyards in Marlborough and Hawke's Bay, and it has several brands. You can buy the wine in more than 50 countries. But let's go back to how George Fistinich got his start. Yes, his father was a gum digger, and the father actually settled in that Mangare area where the beautiful Villa Maria Estate was set up. And... Uh, George was born in 1939 and grew up in that lovely Croatian community that would have been, you know, so close, all those migrants coming together. And uh, then he evidently in 1960 talked his father into leasing him five acres of land and then in one acre of that at Mangarei, he planted the first grapes. Pioneering company in 2015, it was named New Zealand's most admired wine brand. It's still number one in the UK and Ireland. Still the number one wine brand by value. And Air New Zealand called it New Zealand's most awarded winery. When you think about uh, vineyards coming and going and uh, an industry that's under challenge at time. To think of one man having that vision. He was meant to be a carpenter, but he always was interested in the wine. You know, the wine was so much part of their family. Well, when I was building in um, <coughs> out only hunger, Mangri, um, I used to visit all the Croatian families, Babbages, Noblos, Silax, etc., out here in the Sincumia. And I sort of found their lifestyle wandering amongst the vineyards, sipping an odd wine, like as a teenager, more attractive than banging nails into timber. <laughs> yeah, he's such an important figure in developing New Zealand wine, and Villa Maria has sort of been, a, my understanding, you know, a rite of passage for winemakers. They go there, you get schooled up, you work for Villa Maria, and then you sort of go off, I think, with, with George's blessing. You know, I think he just loves the wine industry, and yeah. I, I think an important player, not only in New Zealand wine, but New World wines as a whole and, and you know that story of of those sort of French grapes that we took here and sort of made our own. Grapes like Sauvignon Blanc are um I mean they're French grapes naturally and you know old world wine. The wine is named after the area, but in New Zealand, Australia and the Americas, you know, it's named after the grape. A French sav is going to taste so different to one in Marlborough because you've got that different that different ground. And, and guys like George, you know, figured out how to sort of run with that and, you know, not be ashamed to not be a fancy French wine. 
and we'll hear more from Newsroom's business reporter Andrew Bevan. But here's a clip of Sir George in 2011, when all was going well for his company. Even then, he reveals how difficult it is to make money in the industry. There are a lot of these smaller companies or newer companies without you know, a lot of brand equity or a lot of that have not built up export markets are suffering. There's a lot of pain out there. We're very reasonably fortunate that we've um, established our brand over the last 25 years of export brands, so we've got a good spread right across the world. So well, we've got to work hard, and I can't say that any, anybody in the wine industry is usually profitable, but we're doing, we're, we're doing okay, and we're increasing our brand and, and uh, building the awareness of New Zealand, New Zealand as well. So, you know, an incredibly successful company. Mm. So what, what has happened? Well, the first time that I realised that things had gone wrong, looking back at the court record, it dates back to around about 2019 now. So George Fistinich had done a major upgrade of the um, Hawke's Bay vineyard, and it was a seismic job there, which I think was about 30 million, so it was quite substantial. They called it a state-of-the-art winery, <laughs> yes. built in 2018. Yes, yeah. brilliant. Okay, so, so lo- a big investment there. A big investment there. That first sort of sniff of trouble was back, like, 2019. So round about then, if you look at the court record, ANZ Bank and Rabobank had extended these big loans to Villa Maria. And they were the joint security holders over the assets. So the assets being, you know, the vineyards in Marlborough, Mangare and the Hawke's Bay. And at the direction of the banks, they sought that Villa Maria be restructured. And a new entity was brought in, and that was FFWL, which I think stood for Fistinich Family Wines Limited. So that was the holding company. And so it was a bit of a revelation that the debt was $211 million. So that's how much was owed to those two banks. Although, um, as I understand it, Sir George is very unhappy about that debt being portrayed as very high. One of his advisors told me that $100 million was sort of the core debt and the other was the working capital, which would be repaid. As as you're pointing out, the huge volume of wine came through and the, the grapes were turned into wine that was sold and the money be paid down. So, um, But under this restructuring, there was a restructuring deal sought by the banks. Fistinich Family Wines was established and that was the holding company. I don't quite understand under the restructuring why they had to set up this Fistinich family wines. So was it about separating Sir George and the way he ran the business from the actual assets? Uh, No, not so much that. I think it was about the long-term direction of the business. Obviously, a lot of debt, the bank's becoming concerned about that and beginning to talk about working together to put in place like a a legacy. It seems to me that it was more about that. And obviously, someone who's now in their 80s, you know, the bank would be thinking, well, the banks in this case, what's the long-term plan here? It's, It's hard to know exactly what, you know, the plans of a private company are, but the bank called time, you know, that is what we do know. The receivers came in and and they tried to recover $211 million and they successfully recovered it through selling the Villa Maria brand itself. 
Yes, so in in May 2021, ANZ and Rabobank called in receivers at Calibre Partners. Now, um, now what happened is they went about selling the vineyard land and the property assets for a total of 260 million. That meant the banks got repaid the 211 million dollar debt, and Sir George was paid around about 40 million. So, um, the deal was with Indivin, the wine business, to pay 190 million for the Villa Maria wine making business. So that gave them the wine facilities at Manganay and mm. also the properties in Marlborough and the Hawke's Bay. And for Goodman Property Trust, pay $75 million for the Mangarei property. The Marlborough-based wine company Indivin has agreed to buy the business for an undisclosed sum. Villa Maria has been on the market for some time and its parent, FFWL, went into receivership in May, owing $212 million. So Indivin are the largest producers and growers of wine in New Zealand. Who knew? Yeah, I think by a stretch as well. They have 3,000 hectares of vineyard. Yeah, they started out as a contract winemaker in Marlborough, I want to say in the early 2000s, and they've just expanded so rapidly through a series of acquisitions sort of to, to the point they're at now. And they're a New Zealand company. Yeah. Who's behind them? Who are the people behind them? Yeah, the chief executive of Indivin is Duncan McFarlane, who started it, you know, sort of 20, 20 years ago. Uh, but it's mainly owned by Greg Tomlinson these days, so he's an MBR rich list agricultural investor character. Indivin chair Greg Tomlinson says it's been in talks to buy the company for nine months and sees a natural pairing between the two businesses. It's, it's a great brand. It's, it's got a strong reputation globally. And with the two businesses, it gives a great opportunity for New Zealand to keep building New Zealand's reputation for quality wines and uh, the opportunity for further investment in it and infrastructure and, more, most importantly, brand awareness. So what are your plans for the business? Well, to keep on growing the business and growing New Zealand's reputation for fine wines. We're just going to continue on the path that the Indivin business has been on. And with the Villa business, it gives us some further access to markets that Indivin currently isn't uh, or hasn't got a, um, a exposure in. So that's how it shook down at the end, much, by the way, to the disappointment of Sir George Fistinich. This is the place where, at the age of 21, he started uh, growing grapes. Exactly. And, you know, it meant a lot to him. He was looking at selling um, a part of that Mangarei property and he evidently got Nigel McKenna, a property developer, to come in and do a master plan. So what he actually wanted to do at the Villa Maria Estate in Auckland was expand the business from just, you know, being like a, a beautiful entertainment venue into being like a conference centre, maybe with accommodation as well. So his vision was one of, he has been all his life, grand expansion, can do, you know, move ahead, forward mm. driving. Just like when I talked to him on the phone this week, you know, he was still, you know, he's still talking about the winemakers and the vintners that he worked with 15 years ago who are now working with him at the new brand. And so it's a lovely sort of a legacy that he's pointing out to me that he's created. Then in terms of the Villa Maria operations at Mangari, there's been another step there. Too. Yeah, so Indivin are running a very different business model and um, so they no longer need um, to be producing grapes from that land. That land is sold to Goodman. The vines, I understand it, have been all taken out now. 
and um, you know the big irrigation systems removed, and um, the big logistics centre will be built there. So it'll be a very different looking site in the end from what it you know what it had been. And also the announcement that half the Villa Maria wines are now going to be actually bottled over in the overseas. UK. Yes, because it's a very different business model that Indivin are running. Andrew Bevan had an employee approach him shortly after Indivin made the decision to outsource the bottling, knowing jobs would be lost. Villa Maria is the largest New Zealand wine company in the UK, perhaps Ireland as well. You know, they do big numbers over there. That's half of all of its bottling. And so they're saying now that we are going to bring the wine over as wine juice in a bladder. We're going to ship that over there and we're going to bottle it closer to the destination. Because it's cheaper? It's cheaper. And, you know, their point as well was, you know, there is a carbon footprint outcome to this as well. And of course there is. You're not not shipping a a heck of a lot of glass. Mm. But you know, that that is always going to cause stress with employees. You sort of see, oh, half the bottling's going and we're in this big facility. We, we don't need this to do half of the bottling. You know, what, what's going on? And, and I think the communication there was an issue, at least with the employee that I talked to, that was a serious issue in that they knew people were going to lose their jobs, but that hadn't been communicated and wasn't communicated for three or four months. You hear that there was this sort of strong emphasis on trying to keep Villa Maria, you know, a family business. Sir George is involved in the day-to-day, his daughter's involved in the day-to-day. And despite that that huge size, that sort of the behemoth that had become. um, And and yeah, the employee sort of quote that that stuck with me was, you know, Sir George wouldn't have done this. Um, He probably would have done everything in his power to, to not have this happen. And he expressed his displeasure at the decision to outsource operations to me as well and, and sort of felt like his legacy was being commodified. You kind of do get into some of their motives, though. You, you know, Absolutely, you and they're a private company. They're yeah. a private company. They can do what they like and what they're doing makes sense. I think it's perhaps if you're someone who likes winemaking for winemaking's sake, you're and, and don't get me wrong, in Devon are winemakers and they make great wine. Um, but you're sort of seeing it go from more of an artisanal thing to, to wine made by accountants is, yeah. is a phrase that you hear in is that, that industry right? a lot. Yeah. But in the end, the Mangari operation has shut down. It's they, being closed. It's being closed. Okay, it's not fully closed. No. And s- some of those employees are losing their jobs. Yes, yeah, I think around 14 employees are losing their jobs and others are sort of being reshuffled and, and offered roles with, you know, new third-party companies that are coming in to handle, you know, logistics or mm. bottling or whatever it may be. So the brand lives on, but the original home of Villa Maria is being dismantled. Indivin gets Villa Maria, Goodman Property gets the Mangari land. The banks get back what they're owed, and Sir George is left with $40 million. But the legal battle goes on. Andrew Bevan says it is a confusing court case in two parts, where Sir George is disputing the handling of the sale and the way his former assets are valued. The main court case hasn't started yet. I think there are, you know conversations going on, but I haven't seen that in in the High Court yet. Mm. So basically, the assets of Villa Maria were sold for 260-odd million, 
with debt of 211 million, leaving, you know, 40 million surplus to go to Sir George and his, and his family. And, and George feels like that isn't the true value of the assets of, of the brand, of the land. The court case thus far is quite interesting, I think, if you're, you know, business law nerd, in that it's arguing whether the receivers of the company, um, Neil Jackson and Brendan Gibson, could retain George's own money that should be paid to him out of the surplus account to defend legal action from Sir George Vicenitz himself. Mm. Um, and he's arguing that, no, you can't hold $5 million to do that, and $5 million is a lot of legal fees. Um, but that was ultimately unsuccessful. The next stage of the legal action, I, I feel, is yet to unfold, but it is presumably targeting the receivers and potentially his lender or his banks rather than Indivin or Goodman. For what? Undervaluing? Undervaluing the assets. Ah, Um, I see. Which is a funny one because, you know, 40 million odd left behind. I mean, I, I don't think it's genuinely about the money. And I think if you ask Sir George himself, it's it's more about legacy and having 60 years of work taken from you on, on terms that you're not happy with. Mm. He, uh, You know, he, if it was his choice, would he still have Villa Maria? He'd still have the vineyards? Absolutely. I don't think. I mean, his daughter was involved in the business. Um, he had stepped down from being chief executive of the company, but he was an ambassador. But <laughs> from what you hear from sort of ex-employees, he was incredibly involved, you know, even down to you know, walking into the graphic design department and putting his two cents in on, on something, you know. Um, so so very, very, involved. very involved. It is such an unusual story, though, because I think you asked me too, you know, do we see widespread failures, you know, like mm. the receivership of FFWL? And the answer really is no. I mean, Nick Noblo had failure of a Gewürztraminer vineyard down in the Gisborne area, and there was one that I wrote about a little while ago that had problems paying inland revenue and that was in um, that was in central Otago. But when I look back on it, this is a very unusual story. You know, there are not widespread failures of vineyards in New Zealand at all. And in fact, what I see instead is overseas investment office decisions to allow the existing foreign owners to expand their vineyard operations in New Zealand. So like a growing multi-billion dollar industry, not one in retreat. But there's some other things here. I mean, the fact that this fertile land out in South Auckland by the airport is now being turned into a business park. Yes, and of course the reason that Goodman wanted, I went to a property council conference years ago and they talked about the number of gear shifts that a truck has to do from when it leaves a warehouse to when it hits the motorways. So you can just imagine the formula, the fewer gear shifts, the more valuable the property, right? So so for Goodman, you know, as long as New Zealanders, like we did in the pandemic, keep buying goods online, they need to come into the country and be somewhere before they hit your front doorstep, right? So Mm. for Goodman, this is a a very interesting model. And this industrial property sector has only a 2% vacancy factor in Auckland, so it means that... You know, we've got people, the richest man in New Zealand, Graham Hart, multi-billionaire, is building a lot of these new buildings throughout South Auckland. There's just huge demand for this type of property. But, of course, as you point out, this is um, 
really good land. It's land that grew beautiful grapes. So is a um, you know commercial operation like that the best use of that really good agricultural land? That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Anne Gibson and Andrew Bevan. Mā te wā.